Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. The ECB will probably refrain from endorsing the German Constitutional Court approach. Technical solutions exist, but the conflict is about principles. The ECB will want to protect its independence and the unicity of monetary policy. Together with renewed tension in the euro area, persistent weakness in emerging markets, and the return of tension between the US and China are our top concerns for the recovery in the second half of 2020. We will look into this last point with the help of Aidan Yao, is Senior China Asia Economist at AXA Investment Managers. At the end of this podcast, we look at what's going to happen in the next few days on the economic scene as usual. It's nice to have you back. We're Monday, May the 11th. I'm Gilles Moeck, and you're listening to Macrocast. The ruling by the German Constitutional Court would prevent the Bundesbank from participating to the ECB's Public Sector Purchase Program, PSPP, as well as force it to divest the government bonds it has acquired so far. If the ECB fails within three months to satisfy the German authorities that its program complies with the principle of proportionality, as it considers that the European Court of Justice, the ECJ, has failed to correctly check this in a preliminary ruling. On substance, Proportionality is a particularly problematic concept in the case of the ECB because we would argue that by nature its mandate is disproportionate as per the European Treaty itself. Indeed, Article 1 to 7 gives the ECB the mission to deliver price stability in the area while it shall support the general economic policies in the Union with a view to contributing to the achievement of the objectives of the Union only, I quote, without prejudice to the price stability objective. There should make it clear that price stability, which means in the current circumstances fighting inflation risks, trumps any other consideration. To make this more concrete, we could look at historical precedents in which this absolute dominance of the price stability mandate was controversial. The German Constitutional Court argues that the ECB failed to demonstrate it took on board the interests of the savers when making its PSPP decisions. Without discussing here the relevance of this argument, What would have happened if, say, in July 2008, when the ECB raised its policy rate at the beginning of what was to become the worst recession since 1945, a court in one of the member states had threatened to force its national central bank not to apply the new rate because the ECB had failed to demonstrate it had taken on board the interests of those who were about to lose their job because of such procyclical monetary policy. Independence does not mean that monetary policy cannot be discussed, sometimes robustly, and to be clear, your humble servant considers that the 2008 decision was a massive policy mistake. But there is a joint decision center for this, it's the Governing Council, and a joint institutional forum, the auditions of the ECB president at the European Parliament. And finally, there is the informal court of public opinion, submitting the ECB decisions to the interpretation of the EU law by national courts would quickly make a single monetary policy impossible. So, how to navigate out of this predicament? We think that to explore this fundamental but horribly complex situation, it may be handy to distinguish two interconnected issues. First, the purely German side of the equation, how to deal with it within the institutional setup of Germany, and second, the European side. 
On the first point, there is quite some hope in the possibility the German government and parliament could merely declare themselves satisfied with the proportionality of the ECB's action, based on the existing communication from the ECB, possibly with some support from the Bundesbank, which would allow the ECB proper to remain one step removed from the German Constitutional Court. Reuters reported last Friday that such action had already been taken by the ministry. This may not suffice, however. Indeed, the German Constitutional Court has raised the bar quite high as to how it could be satisfied by the ECB's justification. Indeed, point 235 of the GCC ruling calls on the ECB Governing Council to adopt a new decision that demonstrates in a comprehensible and substantiated manner that the monetary policy objectives pursued by the ECB are not disproportionate to the economic and fiscal policy effects resulting from the program. This is quite precise. We also need to consider the medium-term implications. Indeed, even if the GCC ultimately found PSPP compliant with the treaty's prohibition of monetary funding of governments, its ruling also potentially set up several red lines to the ECB's future action, which so far were deemed to be self-imposed and hence susceptible to amendment. This applies in particular to using the capital key to apportion purchases across national markets and 33% as the maximum share of the eligible debt of the sovereign issuer the ECB can hold. The German Constitutional Court made it plain that its ruling does not apply to PEPP, the new uh, pandemic emergency purchase program, but more lawsuits are likely to come. This, plus the possibility that the GCC paves the way for more dissenting interpretations of EU law in other member states, probably calls for some clarification by the EU institutions. That is the other side of the equation. The ECJ asserted its preeminence on the interpretation of EU law last Friday in no uncertain terms by issuing a press release. I quote, in order to ensure that EU law is applied uniformly, the Court of Justice alone, which was created for that purpose by the member states, has jurisdiction to rule that an act of an EU institution is contrary to EU law. The European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, stated on Saturday that the Commission is, I quote, looking into the possibility of suing Germany for treaty infringement. In a nutshell, all the ingredients for a protracted legal conflict are accumulating. This was brewing for some time, since the GCC had always taken the view they had the possibility to independently check whether European institutions exceed their mandate or act ultra-virus. It is a pity this is coming to such a frontal state at a time when the ECB support is particularly necessary. Now, what would happen in practice if the Bundesbank ended up being permanently barred from participating to PSPP? We could think of two technical solutions. One would be to ask another national central bank to replace the Bundesbank and buy Bunds. This would allow the euro system to continue operating under the capital key, but quite quickly, they would hit the 33% threshold on German debt. Presumably, assuming economic conditions still warranted, they would continue buying Bunds, taking in practice very little risk the probability of default of Germany being infinitesimal. There is very little chance the euro system would find itself in a position of being the deciding factor in a debt restructuring. They would thus continue to support more fragile countries for which the 33% threshold is still far away. Another one would consist in simply stopping purchasing bonds while continuing buying the other member state securities. It would de facto be the end of the capital key condition, but this would also allow a very decent quantum of additional buying in the other constituencies until again the 33% limit is hit there as well. 
The second solution, combined with the Bundesbank gradually selling the bonds it has purchased under the PSPP, could create quite an odd configuration for market interest rates in the area, with peripheral yields under protection, but at the same time potentially high yields in Germany. In a way, one could see continuing without the Bundesbank as a strangely powerful way to deal with the limitations of quantitative easing. By the same token, allowing political authorities in Germany not to be forced to make domestically controversial decisions. Berlin could even officially disagree with the next steps taken by the ECB, but without having any actual impact on how monetary policy would be conducted. ECB action would be merely constrained by the European Court of Justice, which so far has granted the central bank quite some leeway. The only hard limit which we think we could derive from its previous rulings on QE is that the ECB could not hold a majority of bonds. It would still be a very awkward political situation, unlikely to instill confidence in the monetary union construct that the central bank of the biggest economy of the euro area would no longer participate to a central plank of the single monetary policy. Fundamentally, it would be preferable to relieve the pressure on the ECB by stepping up efforts on fiscal mutualization. This would entail parliamentary endorsement in member states and hence support the development of what is yet an incomplete European political space, rather than resorting to an elected body, the central bank, to shoulder most of the burden. The Eurogroup last week made progress on the specific pandemic loans which member states will be able to obtain from the European Stability Mechanism without the usual macroeconomic conditions attached. The long duration, 10 years, is good news, as it will help government cash flows, but capped at 2% of GDP, they can't be the main solution. The recovery fund still needs to be defined. Maybe the growing awareness among the frugal states that the ECB's capacity is not infinite, at least not without triggering some thorny legal and political issues, will speed up the process. Another item on our backlash list is the return of tension between China and the US. At the beginning of the pandemic, President Trump had been sympathetic to the plight of China. The tone has suddenly changed. Reigniting tension is a temptation for the incumbent, as the November elections are looming. It is a double-edged sword. Indeed, adding to the shock of the pandemic more uncertainty on global trade may alienate the moderate voters chiefly concerned with the state of the economy. Still, now that Joe Biden is leading the polls in almost all the crucial Rust Belt states, Donald Trump may want to focus again on a theme which resonates with blue-collar voters. This would not help China. Indeed, so far Beijing has not engaged in the form of extreme fiscal support which has been so prevalent in the West. After the mechanical rebound in March, the recovery is now subdued, judging by the usual indicators such as the PMIs. I'm very happy that Haidan Yao, who covers China in our team, has agreed to share his analysis with us from Hong Kong. And first of all, Aiden, uh, I would like to ask you how you are and how life is coming back to normal in Hong Kong. Hello, Joe. I'm very well. Uh, in Hong Kong, there's indeed a sense of a returning to normalcy in Hong Kong. The city has been virus-free for the past three weeks. And so the government has started to relax uh, some of the control measures by allowing more people back to the public areas. Uh, at XIM, we are also starting to have colleagues back to the office. So indeed, there's a genuine sense of life back to normal. Well, that's great news. And I hope you know, we're going to, to see the same uh, in, in the West as well. Um, so 
as we said, uh, the usual PMIs don't show a particularly healthy glow at the moment. Uh, would it be fair to say that the recovery is somewhat fading in China? Mm. I think after the initial phase of the recovery due to supply normalization, we have indeed seen a bit of a loss of momentum in the recovery, particularly in the industrial and uh, manufacturing sectors, uh, reflected in the flatlining of the co-consumption numbers, but also, as you mentioned, the the PMI numbers as well. That being said, I think we are starting to see some tentative signs of a consumer sector coming back to life. Uh, with recent high-frequency data uh, in house sales and uh, auto sales all registering some uh, quite decent gains. Uh, However, I think this recovery is not built on solid ground uh, as the demand outlook both domestically and globally does not offer much comfort. So I think in order to preserve and continue this recovery, we really need uh, to see authorities doing more with policy easing. And that's indeed what we are looking for at the upcoming uh, MPC meeting at later this month. So tell me more about what we, what we could expect. Um, as uh, I said, you know, this is really a key event uh, that's supposed to kick off uh, on May 22nd. Uh, this is a chance, I think, for Beijing to really get ahead of the curve after having lagged behind uh, somewhat in policy easing relative to uh, developed economies. Uh, specifically, we are looking for a more forceful uh, fiscal policy response uh, with a higher on-budget deficit, uh, increased the local central government bond issuance quota for this year, and also more spending uh, through the off-balance sheet channels like policy bank, LGFBs, and SOEs. Um, monetary policy will obviously do more as well, but mainly in our view to finance these fiscal initiatives as opposed to playing a dominant role in driving policy easing given the well-known side effects of aggressive policy stimulus in the past. So in our view, this MPC is really the key event to watch over the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Aiden, uh, for being with us and uh, being so enlightening. Uh, and I wish you a great evening in Hong Kong. Thank you. This week's focus. Well, two things for us, uh, which should be in the limelight uh, this week in terms of, of data release. Uh, first, we can infer from what we had so far from the rest of the year area that uh, the recession in Germany in the first quarter was milder than in a lot of other member states, uh, but we still don't have the official figure. And this is something uh, we, we will have uh, this week on the 15th of, of May. Um, we need to pour over the details uh, to understand exactly uh, why Germany is uh, doing better than the others, even if we suspect that it's primarily uh, because the lockdown is is simply milder. Uh, another country is going to release its uh, GDP uh, figure for Q1, and that's the UK. And uh, the UK is also now our, how to say, uh, naughty list at the moment. Our impression is that uh, the contraction activity was very severe. Contrary to what, what, what could have been expected just a few days or a few weeks ago, it seems that uh, the lockdown is going to last much longer than what had been expected. Um, so Q1 could be quite horrid, uh, but Q2 could actually be very, very depressed. Uh, if you add to the mix the fact that uh, the UK is going to face tough negotiations on uh, how to exit from the EU, uh, that is not a great combo. Well, for several weeks, we've been trying together in Macrocast to predict the shape of the post-lockdown rebound. Um, Now the world is facing its recovery uh, and the next few weeks will be decisive. 
I will be very happy to spend them together, if you will allow it, starting next Monday. In the meantime, have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.